Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from SafeAdeen.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, SafeAdeen.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeaddeen.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast Seminar. Today's guest is economist Per Bilund, who is a fellow of the Mises Institute and assistant professor of entrepreneurship and records Johnson professor of free enterprise in the School of Entrepreneurship in the Spears School of Business at Oklahoma State University and an associate fellow at the Ratio Institute in Stockholm. Many of you might know Per from Twitter, where he is quite active at explaining a lot of powerful economic concepts and ideas. And uh, he's got quite a big following of people who 
uh, enjoy his insights, and I am one of them, because Per is one of the people who brings in the insights of Austrian economics and applies them to economic questions and the economic issues of the day. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Per. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's awesome. Great. So Per's work spans many topics in Austrian economics, and hopefully we'll have time to go over many of them. I wanted to first begin with his work on entrepreneurship. Give us an idea about your work on entrepreneurship and why you think Austrian economics is quite useful and uh, informative when it comes to entrepreneurship and how has it helped you both in your academic career as a scholar as well as as an entrepreneur. Okay, so it's not hard to be more relevant than standard economics in terms of entrepreneurship because there is no entrepreneur in standard economics, Uh, whereas in Austrian economics, the entrepreneur is at the very core. So as an Austrian, I see, and as a former entrepreneur too, I see the economy as a process, as a dynamic, ever-changing market where things are always in flux and the entrepreneur is at the core of that. He's the actor or the function that causes change to the economy, thereby contributes to economic growth, accumulates capital, creates new products, and so forth. If we are to understand what makes the economy tick and how the economy changes and what to expect from the future, then we need to study entrepreneurship. And I think in the study of entrepreneurship, you can go very wrong in sort of the same sense as mainstream economics goes wrong without the entrepreneur. If you study the entrepreneur without the context, take the entrepreneur out of the economy and you can end up with all kinds of weird stuff. So to me, you have to study both. So you have to study the economy from the point of view of the entrepreneur. You have to study the entrepreneur considering that the entrepreneur is acting within an economic context and primarily a market then. In that sense, I mean, you, you can't really separate the two. And entrepreneurship has this long tradition of discussing entrepreneurship. And entrepreneur was discussed already by the founder, Carl Menger, back in 1871. Even though he didn't discuss it at length, he still discussed what a an entrepreneur does and what the activities that entrepreneurs undertake typically are and the role in the economy and so forth. And then, of course, others uh, in the Austrian school have developed this too. So it's it's not really that strange that in the formal academic study of entrepreneurship, Austrian economics is a pretty big, influential and important perspective. Of course, it's boiled down to not have this whole context, like I just mentioned, the, by the economy. Instead, they have separate theories of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship. But the two biggest ones are Israel Kirzner, who's definitely an Austrian, and Joseph Schumpeter, depending on who you ask, it might be an Austrian. At least the early Schumpeter was an Austrian. And those are the two big perspectives. So obviously, being an Austrian, that helps a lot because you have the whole background. You have the actual real economic meaning of the terms that they use and the concepts that they use. And you have the background for how to properly understand the theories, which is something that a lot, I think, of my peers, quote unquote, in this business lack because they don't have the Austrian economics background. In your opinion, why is there little treatment of the topic of the entrepreneur in mainstream economics? You know, if you've studied the macroeconomics at the university level, the role of the entrepreneur is essentially non-existent. In microeconomics, it exists, but the entrepreneur is essentially treated as a manager. And there's little distinction between the entrepreneur and the manager. I'm curious, first of all, why you think this is the case? Why can't they just have a more rich treatment of entrepreneurship? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. If you want to address the economy in mathematical formula and have formal analyses in equations and graphs and things like that, the the entrepreneur is, is 
typically recognized as the person who brings about newness, who innovates, who disrupts things, changes how things are done, changes the types of goods available for consumers, thereby changes consumer behavior, things like that. And you can't really fit that into math. I mean, it would basically be the error term. But then you would say that, oh, the explanation for all of these phenomena is in the error term. I mean, that's terribly bad science. So I think you have to exclude the entrepreneur in order to use equilibrium models and math and all this stuff. Economists do study entrepreneurship, but they don't study the concept or the function of the entrepreneur in the economy. So what they study is basically number of startups or number of small firms. So they look at one industry and they say, oh, this is an entrepreneurial industry because they have many small firms and not so many big firms. But they don't really go further than that. They dive into policy instead and they look at, oh, so you have these public investments in entrepreneurship to create jobs because jobs are created in new small firms. And how much entrepreneurship that is small businesses did we get out of this public investment? That's pretty much the extent of it, looking at the policies and which policies are effective. I mean, Josh Lerner's Boulevard of Broken Dreams is a, is a good example. It's a book that is easy to read, but he just goes through a lot of evidence from all kinds of government projects and looks at why did they succeed? Why did they fail? And to what degree do these public investments actually pan out? You don't learn a whole lot from it. I'm recommending it as sort of a, an insight into how economists view entrepreneurship, but I don't recommend it as a book. A lot of how modern economics functions can be explained by just understanding that it suffers from physics envy. They're trying to fit this into physics. And in physics, the way things work is you're dealing with inanimate objects. And so their movements can be studied in aggregates and you can find regularities in their behavior. So, you know, if you put a gas and you compress the gas by this much, then the temperature would rise. There are constant relationships that you can find and uncover in them. And mainstream economics has gone down the alley of trying to make human action fit into that straitjacket of physics. And if you're trying to do that, then, you know, you need to have formulas. You need to have equations where things become mathematical and where things become predictable. And then when you do that, it becomes very difficult to incorporate something like entrepreneurship because what the entrepreneur is essentially doing in the market economy is changing the constants, changing the underlying reality that is influencing all the actions of others. And so you look at macroeconomic equations, they examine the economy from the perspective of, well, this is how much capital stock we have, and this is how much labor we have. And there's growth in capital and there's growth in labor. And then there's the level of technology or there's the error term, which includes everything else, which is, you know, all of the human aspect of the economy is included in the error term. But really, the economy is primarily about the capital and the labor. So we've got this big bucket of capital and we have this big bucket of labor. And then when you put them together, you allow a little bit of an error term for humans being introduced into this equation. But ultimately, it's about, you know, mixing capital and labor in order to produce GDP. It's almost like a chemical or physical equation where, you know, you add three parts labor plus seven parts capital and you get 12 parts GDP. And then there's, you know, the little two is the human element that comes in. It's a wonderful example of the limitations of this. And it's a wonderful example of why trying to fit human action and economics into mathematical equation. And many people would say, well, you know, without math, we wouldn't be able to understand the things. And I think it actually ends up being more of an impediment toward understanding it. So now within the Austrian perspective, you mentioned the Schumpeterian view and the Kurzer's view on entrepreneurship. What are the main insights of Schumpeter's view? Well, Schumpeter saw the entrepreneur as an innovator. Mm -hmm. An innovator is not the same thing as an inventor, I should say. 
because an inventor is the person coming up with a new thing, basically someone doing research or trying out new materials or whatever. But an innovator is the person bringing it to market and making it useful and valuable to people. Someone can be an inventor of a new type of touchscreen, for instance, but putting that new type of touchscreen on a new type of device that people really value, that would be the innovation. Entrepreneurs, they create new combinations, just like you mentioned, labor capital, pretty much figuring out new ways of satisfying consumers. And he started out with the economy in equilibrium. And then said the entrepreneur is sort of this guy who comes out of left field and comes up with this new combination that no one knew anything about before. And that turns out to be usually, or importantly, very valuable, which means that it destroys what was before. When Apple introduced the iPhone, that was a new type of value, was an innovation. I mean, the technology was pretty much there. It's just put together in a different way. And it was so valuable that people turned their backs on what was before, that is the flip phone. It created this new, very valuable good and thereby it destroyed what was before. It's a way for the economy to sort of take leaps forward. And Schumpeter was trying to explain economic growth and he did it that way because he said that the economy is in equilibrium uh, and then something must happen to force it out of equilibrium so that it can re-equilibrate on a new higher level. And that was the explanation of economic growth. And that force is the entrepreneur. Yeah, and that's, of course, Schumpeter's famous concept of creative destruction, which is really the driver of economic growth in the Schumpeterian view is that capitalism destroys. We couldn't have had the smartphone if we didn't get rid of the uh, flip phone. We couldn't have had computers if we hadn't gotten rid of typewriters. And we couldn't have had typewriters if we hadn't destroyed the job of people writing with their hands, copywriters. This is another example of just how much richer it can be to try and think about economic phenomena through human action rather than trying to fit them into mathematics. Because we've had a whole century of mainstream economists trying to think about entrepreneurship mathematically And ultimately, when they do come up with important insights, it's not insights that emerge from the math. You know, it's not like somebody looked at a growth model and then from the growth model was able to discern, oh, well, this is how entrepreneurship functions. One way people like to think about it in mainstream is the total factor productivity, that economic growth happens, as I was saying earlier, there's the capital and then there's the labor and then there's the everything else which goes into total factor productivity. And so you try and look at changes in total factor productivity and you try and correlate them with measures of entrepreneurship, like how many startups or how many patents or this or that. And you come up with proof that entrepreneurship matters. But even if you do manage to get that, you're essentially just setting up the question to arrive at the answer, which you had you had arrived at through logical, a priori, praxeological analysis, right? It's deceptive too. I mean, if you start dressing the economy in math and in formulas, I mean, it seems like everything is just a perfectly predictable mechanism. You do not see innovation. You do not see entrepreneurship. You do not see new value creation as it's actually always happening around us. So you have excluded that part. And at the same time, when you're focusing so intently on the math and on these equations, you start believing that it is the math and the equations, which means that uh, it shouldn't be so hard to plan, right? It shouldn't be hard to just tweak these variables and create a different outcome and maybe improve the lives of everyone just through government having another policy that experts have expertly made. Because if it is simply about mechanisms and no real change, no endogenous change, no change coming from from within and everything is just working in a certain way, responding in certain ways, then of course you can, then you probably should too. I mean, ethically, try to make as much as possible out of it. It really deceives the whole discipline into believing that central planning works and if is preferable. 
So that it's a huge problem. Urge to mathematicize is the urge to control, really. It's because when we start thinking about it with the same equations that chemists and engineers use, then the next step is how do we use this to achieve the goals that we want? Schumpeterian story is not very popular. People don't want to be told that you know your flip phone is going to go out of business. People don't want to be told that the typewriter factory is going to go out of business. You know, we want to have the computers, but we also want to keep the typewriter factory working because we don't want the people who work in the typewriter factory to lose their jobs because that's not nice. It's almost as if by mathematicizing this, we can just take away the unpleasant part of it. We can take away the ugly part of entrepreneurship and innovation, which is that, you know, the old has to die. There's no way around it. With mathematicization, there kind of appears to be a way around it. Then, you know, we don't really need to think about the cost. We can have the fruits. So it's almost like the example that I like to give to understand the Schumpeter's creative destruction is you look at any gardener, what do they do? They plant seeds once a year, but the vast majority of gardening is cutting out unfavorable weeds and unfavorable branches. So you go to the tree, you take out the branches that are not very healthy, you take out the weeds that are around the tree, and you're constantly taking out the things that are not conducive. And that's what allows the nice flowers to blossom because you've taken away the weeds. It's what allows the trees to grow because you've taken away the dying branches and dying leaves. They're taking up resources, but they're not producing enough fruit. So cut them off. The ones that are producing fruits will thrive more. It's an essential part of the market economy, but it's a part that kind of gets underplayed in the kind of politically correct mainstream economics because it's not a pleasant part. Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to apply that lesson of sort of evolutionary change onto human beings because that gets ugly quite quickly. The problem that we're having is that we have endless wants. We want to have better and better and better and better lives and there are more of us too. And we don't have more physical resources. So we need to figure out how to use those resources in the best way possible. But I mean, if that was not the case that we had limited resources, then we could potentially continue to produce all those flip phones while people still chose iPhones. But why would we? I mean, those materials, those workers, those factories, everything, they're better used somewhere else. The whole point of studying economics and thinking about the economy is to understand economizing, right? How can we get as much value as possible out of the little we have, the few resources we have and the resources that we create because we do create most of our resources. That's where the entrepreneur is so important because the entrepreneur figures out more valuable ways of using the resources that we already have. And that's sort of the core of Schumpeter's theory that the entrepreneur figures out new combinations of whatever resources there already are land and different types of metals and labor and what have you. But a new combination of those things, a new ingenious combination can create a whole lot more value for consumers. And hey, that's just a perfect gain in a sense, right? That you're creating more value, but you didn't actually add more inputs. Schumpeter's analysis of creative destruction is essential to his analysis of capitalism overall. And he says, effectively, once a society stops accepting the fact that you need to destroy typewriter jobs, then slowly it begins to become more Slerotic, essentially, and less welcoming to change. And then essentially, politically, it moves toward a world in which people don't want to witness entrepreneurial change. And that leads to economic stagnation and economic decline. And politically, it comes along with the move toward more socialist political policies. He has this uh, beautiful statement, I think, in Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy, his later work, where he talks about how capitalism or the free market is a beautiful system because it is never maximized. So he contrasts the free market as a never maximized maximized system with any system that is maximized at any point in time. And he says that the non-maximized system will beat the maximized system any day. And why is that? Because oh, you need the trial and error and the entrepreneurship that trying stuff out to figure out this new value creation, whereas 
if the system is maximized already, that you're already using all resources to the extent possible, given your knowledge right now, there's no space for entrepreneurs. There's no way of trying out whatever ideas you might have for creating new value. To maximize as economists do when they calculate the equilibrium point and everything like that and try to take us there through policy, if we actually get there, that would be a disaster. Absolutely. It's a very, I think, a powerful critique of central planning, which is that even if you think you might have the perfect answer, the fact that you impose it as the perfect answer will necessarily mean that you've gotten a political and economic system that is resistant to change and that effectively treats the entrepreneur as a heretic. We already have the typewriter. Why do you want to shut down typewriter factories? You're just trying to destroy people's livelihoods. But in reality, if you actually look at it in dynamic economies, it's not like the typewriter factory people end up being destitute. In a capitalist economy, in a truly free market, you know, you would have the acceptance of change as being inevitable as part of the process. And I think the fragility that people currently have is not a result of capitalist disruption. It's a result of the structural and monetary policies that leave people vulnerable. In other words, in a world in which people were able to accumulate capital and invest and in which money was hard and which people could save, then, you know, if the typewriter factory goes out of business, the workers in the typewriter factory, they stop earning money, but they don't become destitute because they have their savings and they have their homes and they've accumulated wealth over the years. And this job ending is not going to leave them destitute. But in a world in which everybody's in debt, that's where it becomes a problem, you know, because the typewriter factory workers are in debt for a home and the whole town is built around the factory and the whole town is in debt and the whole town pays off its debts from this. And so that leaves that fragility, which then gets overplayed in order to say, well, you see, bad things happen when we move away from typewriters. We should just stick to staying on the typewriters as they are. Even in the last 10, 20 years, you can see just how much more the economies of the world have become resistant to economic change over the last 10, 20 years because of this, because of the incredibly unpopular political cost of anybody losing their job anywhere. Unless, of course, it was public health reasons, in which case nobody cares. Yeah, good um, point. <laughs> yeah, in which case... You no, know, this focus on jobs is just something that I really hate because it's so destructive. I mean, if you think about it, the most valuable resource that we have... It's right up here, upstairs. And we all have it. And we all have different ideas. And we all can work. The most scarce resource that we have, in a sense, is human beings, is people. So that someone would lose their job in free market setting because of creative destruction. That simply means that that line of production was not valuable enough, meaning you can get a job where you can make more money and produce more value somewhere else. I mean, that's what it means, right? Yeah. And instead, what we have now is policymakers doing whatever they can to protect jobs. Jobs, especially jobs in big old corporations producing goods that were popular some decades ago. And by protecting these jobs, what are you doing? Well, you're stopping the creative destruction. So just like Schumpeter said, you need the resources in order to try out new lines of production. Well, the politicians are always aiming for zero unemployment, right? If you have zero unemployment, there would be no one to have time to work in those startups that entrepreneurs want to create that will create more value for us, which means we have basically stagnation in wages, stagnation in innovation. We will not see any new products. Everything will be just like yesterday. It will be basically Groundhog Day for all of us. When we're talking about this in an economic growth and value creation, we think about stuff very often. 
But I mean, that's not really what we're talking about in terms of economic growth. That's stuff like eradicating disease, finding treatments for cancers that we haven't been able to treat yet, or cures even, right? And space travel and what have you. All of these things that we don't have, that's what we will get with economic growth because it's about solving problems and making our lives better off. I would say I despise those policymakers that focus so much on protecting people's jobs. It hurts to lose your job. I know that, especially in a rigid job market like we have practically everywhere now, thanks to the politicians. People must lose their jobs and businesses must go bankrupt in order to create something much better. Create a destruction. You can't have the creation without destruction. Absolutely. And I think the real issue is the fragility that people face. The idea that your livelihood is destroyed if you lose your job. The problem is not the job. The problem is not the fact that you live in a country where jobs are destroyed. The problem is that something is leaving you extremely fragile for this. And I think, you know, this is a drum we love to beat in uh, this corner of the internet. It's the problem of easy money. It's very hard for people to accumulate savings. Whereas if you think about it in a time and place where money is hard, where money appreciates, you know, people hold on to cash balances over long periods of time and they pass them on to their children and their children keep accumulating more cash. And then everybody has got a real safety net, which means that you're able to take on any job, even if there's a very high risk that it might be lost. You know, you're going with a startup that could fail, but people can't take those risks because they have savings and the savings hold on to their value. Now, in a world in which nobody has savings and in a world in which money is constantly depreciating, then you need to be earning at all times in order to eat and in order to pay off the mortgage and in order to pay off all of your debts. And in that world, you know, losing your job even for a couple of months can be devastating. You know, people miss a few paycheck and they end up on the street because they miss payments on their mortgage. I think that's the fragility that people should be concerned about rather than just being worried about the natural working of the market process. And the political economic point that Schumpeter makes in that book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, is essentially that losing the ability to accept creative destruction politically will lead you toward a socialist political economy because people stop being able to tolerate this. And then that just takes away the moving engine of capitalism. And when I try and explain this idea, one good example to use is, for instance, Lada, the Soviet car that essentially stayed the same from the 1950s until the 1980s, because under a communist system, under a centrally planned economy, there's no mechanism for improving the design of Lada. There's no competitive process that drives the engineers behind Lada to try and improve it. You know, they figured out how to make this car in the 50s and they keep on making it. And now you're, as a consumer, your choice is you take this car or you don't. Well, actually, you don't even have a choice. And usually you couldn't take the car because most people had to wait many years to get one. But that was it. You know, if you got it, you know, you couldn't just complain. You couldn't write them a letter and saying, you know what? I don't like the Lada. I'm going to switch to the Mercedes. I think the Mercedes is better. That was not an option. So there's no mechanism for change in a socialist economic system. And Lada is a good example to illustrate this. But the reason people like the entrepreneurship and the creative destruction of capitalism is not just about driving better cars. You can apply the same logic of the Lada to all aspects of life, to healthcare, to not just the car in terms of its appearance, but the car in terms of its safety. You know, so many people died because they were driving crappy Ladas, which could have been made much safer with the modern inventions that were emerging in the 80s in Western Europe and in the US and in places where they had this entrepreneurship process. What you're saying about the lot is it reminds me of a joke, a similar <laughs> automobile manufacturer, the Trabant in Eastern Germany, Yeah, where you have a customer and enter the, I'm not sure if it was actually a dealership, but some place where you order cars 
and says, oh, I, I need a new car. And the salesman says, okay, it'll be ready in 10 years. Come back in 10 years. And the customer says, um, morning or afternoon? <laughs> and the salesman says, why does it matter? Well, the plumber is coming in the afternoon. <laughs> so you, you have to wait for stuff uh, because it's inefficient and it's not responsive to consumers. And you have to wait for really bad stuff too, because it's not really developed for consumers either. Many of these things that we enjoy today were things that when they were initially released in the market, people were like, oh, why would you want that? Why would you need that? Because right? it's not necessary, right? And that's yeah. the whole communist thing that it should just be needs-based. Well, we don't have a need for anything really until we see it and become used to it. Well, if that is the case, then no one will introduce these new things because who is going to introduce those and decide to bet on what consumers might like or might like more. Well, it's not the central planning committee because no one has anything to gain from adding these things, right? And that's why the LADA and the Trabant, they were exactly the same because why change any of this? The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with a nice colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Absolutely. It's a great example. It's Germany, which is the world's superpower when it comes to engineering. And yet, thanks to the absence of entrepreneurship by the 1980s, East Germany, they were driving decrepit cars that couldn't work and were extremely dangerous. It's an astonishing achievement for socialism that it could get German engineers to make something as bad as the Trabant. Really, nothing else could do this. This is Schumpeter. Now, what about Kersner? How does Kersner's perspective on entrepreneurship differ from that? Kersner is much less interesting than Schumpeter, in a sense. I guess the best way of explaining Kersner is that he was trying to find a bridge between the Austrians' view of the market process and the mainstream view of an economy that is already in equilibrium. The way Pete Bethke at George Mason explains it is that, well, you can use the mainstream economist's tools to explain and analyze the economy if we're just close enough to equilibrium. And Kersner was trying to explain that, well, entrepreneurship is that force that brings the economy closer and closer to equilibrium. So in a sense, it's the opposite of Schumpeter because Schumpeter is the disruptor taking the economy out of equilibrium. Kersner assumes that the economy is never in equilibrium, but that the entrepreneur makes money off of sort of solving problems, finding errors and figuring out solutions to those. So a little bit better resource allocation, using things a little more efficiently, improving a, a product 
so that more people find value in it and, and things like that. So it's sort of a technical formalistic argument almost. It's a, this function that takes the economy closer and closer to equilibrium because people change their minds. We're never ever going to end up there, but we're getting closer and closer and we're close enough so that we can use all these equilibrium models and, and use all those tools that we learn in mainstream economics. I personally think that Kirzner made some errors in his theorizing, mistook some core assumptions in Austrian economics, which is why he ended up so close to the mainstream. And in a sense, he took the ideas of Hayek and Hayek has this uh, famous discussion on prices, how prices react and transfer information, collects information and transfers information, the necessary information for people to act on. So in this example, there's a tin mine that suddenly stops producing. I can't recall why, but I guess there's an accident or something like that. And because price of tin then surges, entrepreneurs start to they become a little more economic in terms of using tin and they look to other alternatives. So everybody's sort of adjusting. So it's this adjustment process is sort of what Kirzner is talking about. Everybody's figuring out a little bit better position for themselves and their production. It's not really about the innovation and this disruptive. Schumpeter's entrepreneur is basically a heroic character. That's not very good theory either to have a hero, but it's much more fascinating and much cooler story in a sense than Kirzner. There's an economy and then a hero comes along and he invents a smartphone <laughs> and things get better. It is a little bit simplistic, maybe. It might even seem like, well, that's a little bit of a cop-out. But I think I go back to Mises' quote in Human Action, which I stress centrally in my online courses, Economics 11 and Economics 12. Mises emphasizes capitalist is an entrepreneurial system. It's not a managerial system. And I think this is an enormously profound point. From the mainstream perspective, what a capitalist does is purely managerial. Nigeria. You know, the capitalist looks at the market for phones and they see that, well, we can make phones for $100 and we can sell them for $150. So they start buying the resources, they make the phones, they sell them, they turn a profit. And it's just almost formulaic, but that's the manager's part that, you know, the, the entrepreneur is doing something actually different, which is they foresee a phone that did not exist. It's not just that they ran the numbers and figured out that they could make $50 profit per phone. They foresee a reality in a world in which something new exists and other people haven't seen it. That ability to invest with their own capital and to take risk and to put capital on the line and risk it getting destroyed, that's what makes the capitalist process. And if you remove that from the capitalist process, which is essentially what all socialist and Keynesian conceptions of the economy do, you destroy the capital economy. You destroy the capitalist economy because without this, you know, you end up with not just the Trabant as a car, but you end up with the economy that is stuck with Trabants that take 10 years to be produced because the world is constantly changing. Nothing is constant in life. You know, the, the earth is turning, day changes into night and the seasons change into one another and life goes on and people get older. So things are constantly changing. There's no constants in life. So life is constantly changing and we're constantly trying to adapt to it. And it is really the entrepreneur who's able to adapt the changes in a way that is better if they succeed. If they fail, of course, they make the world worse and they're punished for it by losing their capital. Yeah, and I would go even further. I mean, I, I think Mises' view of the entrepreneur is, well, the best one in Austrian economics, but he defines it theoretically as simply uncertainty bearing. The entrepreneur bears the uncertainty of whatever action, whatever production. But I think there's more to it than that. Taking the Austrian perspective and look at what Menger and others talked about from the very beginning, we know that a, a good is is something that a consumer thinks will satisfy their want. And someone has to produce that good, of course, and sell it to them. Well, what entrepreneurs do is not simply 
adjust to their changing preferences and their changing demands and their changing behaviors, but they're also trying to step ahead of the consumer. Entrepreneurs are creating products that they can't know whether consumers will like or not. That's why so many of them fail. So they start a production process, they make all those investments, they take out loans, they hire people, they train people, they start the production process, and then they make product available to consumers. And then the consumer is sovereign and will let them know by buying or not buying whether it was a good investment or not. Right? But everything happens really before the consumer even is exposed to that good. And that's not really an adjustment. In the macro view, yeah, it's an adjustment of production overall. But in the micro view and what entrepreneurs are doing, they're really trying to beat each other in creating the future for consumers. Right? So they are really changing consumer behavior by offering them something that consumers had no clue would be there. An example I usually use is Henry Ford and his Model T. Quotes that is usually used is that had I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And consumers are like that. I mean, if you ask consumers what they want, they can take the next step and see that, oh, a smartphone that is a little faster, that is a little thinner, a little lighter, right? Or as it was back in the day, a flip phone that is even smaller. Well, Steve Jobs' iPhone was a much, much bigger phone. And you would never have gotten that had you asked consumers. Instead, what entrepreneurs are doing is stepping ahead of them, saying that, you know what? I think this type of good would be a huge value to consumers. They just don't know it yet. I'm going to put everything on the line. I'm going to produce this thing because I really believe in it. If I'm wrong, I'm going to lose everything myself. That's the uncertainty bearing. If I'm right, I'm going to make money and people are going to be really happy with my product. And by doing this and by trying to beat each other, by producing this new tomorrow for everyone, this new future, they're really creating uncertainty for themselves too, because they can't know what to expect. That's why in capitalist economy, you can't just sit back and relax and continue producing what you have always been producing. So even if you are a huge corporation and you're producing something that you've been selling this forever and you're the only one selling it, you can never relax because someone else can have this idea and already be working on this idea that will change consumers' behavior completely. That's why monopolies are not really a problem in a free and open market because any entrepreneur at any time can completely undermine and topple whatever monopolies you have. And that's why I think it's so fascinating with the Misesian view of the entrepreneur because it's not really just the creative destruction innovator heroic guy that Schumpeter is talking about and it's not really just the adjustment uh, that Kersner is talking about either. It's putting the two together and talking about the whole process as sort of an evolving in time because all these entrepreneurs are aiming for a future that doesn't exist, but that they are determined to create. Yeah. We have Theo who wants to ask you a question. Theo, do you want to go ahead? Thanks to be with us today. I just wondered, uh, I've read in De Soto quoting Kirzner that the entrepreneur is also importance in the market economy in the sense that by his actions, by seeking to benefit from profit opportunities, he actually creates pertinent information that will be conveyed by prices and help uh, economic agents to coordinate and achieve the, the better outcome. Is that what you meant by your explanation of Kirzner's view about entrepreneurship as an agent that adjusts prices, or is it something different? It's pretty close. That is basically Hayek's argument about how prices get reactions and how entrepreneurs react and adjust their behavior to the prices out there. That's half of the story. That's Kirzner's story that they're they're figuring out new ways of profiting, even though by doing something a little bit differently. 
right? And they responded to those prices. The other part of it is Mises' argument or economic calculation, where entrepreneurs, because they are guided by the value that they think they're creating for future consumers, they are thereby, based off of those values, they are placing bids for resources in competition with each other. So the entrepreneurs, by looking into the future and trying to figure out what to produce, they are creating the prices for their own inputs. So they're both adjusting. I mean, as an individual entrepreneur, I am, of course, I look at the prices. I can't really do much about the prices. So I'll, I'll buy inputs at whatever price there is. I'm adjusting my production, what have you, to the prices out there, especially after I've started the business. I've decided I'm going to do it this way and then prices change and I will adjust to maintain profitability. But entrepreneurs collectively, because they're trying to create this new value, are consistently changing the prices of inputs and thereby steering the inputs to the most valuable lines of production. So it's both an adjustment to the prices and adjusting the prices. And they do both. I think the DeSoto discussion sort of captures both sides of that story. So you're also an entrepreneur yourself, Per. Can you tell us a little bit about your entrepreneurship and how you think all of this research into Austrian economics has helped you with it? And actually also, were you an entrepreneur first or were you an Austrian economist first? Well, unfortunately, I was... Uh, I ended up an Austrian economist. I wish I had done it the other way around. Had I known what I know now, I would have done everything differently. So that story is it's really a very short story. In a sense, I followed the advice that I give my students that if you're going to fail, fail fast and with as little investment as possible. That's pretty much what I did too. I did probably what most entrepreneurs do. I didn't have much of a clue. I just thought that this was a great idea. So I went ahead and, and tried to do it. I started one business while in high school, which was sort of a type of project with other students. Pretty much a retailer of beauty products. Not very exciting for an 18-year-old male, but it went okay, but it's not very entrepreneurial either. Starting a business, it's a good experience. Then I started a, as I was in systems development in my previous career, I figured that, you know what, people want websites, but they can't code websites. They would probably want like a very simple content management system that they can buy. And, And there are some, and I was developing some Uh, professionally, but they cost hundreds of thousands of dollars because they were all tailor-made for that business and coded from scratch. So I figured, wait a minute, for small businesses who want a just simple website, but be able to update the content a little bit themselves, I could produce such a system. So I set out, started producing one of those. I was almost done and ready to launch when this other system called WordPress released to the market. And it's really hard to compete with free. So even though I was just going to charge like a hundred bucks or something, very modest amount compared to free and WordPress was of course much more advanced than what I was offering anyway. Uh, So that idea, well, I put uh, hundreds of hours into producing the system Uh, This must have been back in, I don't know, 2000, 2002, maybe something like that. I covered all the cost, but got zero revenue. Another project was, since I speak a few languages, was a translation project, proofing and editing and things like that. And I got a customer actually through a friend who was writing a book. He bought the service of proofreading and editing. So he said, well, when I finish a chapter, I will send you the chapter, you go through it and you fix it up so that the language is good and everything. And I was like, great. And then when the book is finished, I'll pay you. And we agreed on the price and everything. That seemed like a pretty good project. So I did the first half of the book, maybe five or six chapters, and then he died. So he never finished the book. And of course, I never got paid either then. But it was also one of those, an experience to learn from, but it was not a not very successful entrepreneurship endeavor. I made some of those very simple mistakes that I know that people make and that I try to teach my students not to make. 
I mean, one of those very basic things that I teach them over and over and over again, because somehow we tend to forget is that value comes first and cost is a choice. And this is, seems very difficult for people to grasp until they grasp it, because then it's obvious. But the way you do entrepreneurship is not to say, hmm, I want to do this. I want to create this type of good. And then you start drafting it and you start producing it. You calculate your cost and you say, oh, well, it costs me this much and I'll just add a profit margin to it. And then that's my price. Well, you haven't considered the consumer whatsoever. You haven't considered whether it's valuable. You haven't considered competitors. You haven't considered anything at all. You've just done this whole thing for yourself. The chances of you succeeding doing it this way, that's just pure luck, right? Because you could have chosen a different way of producing it, maybe at lower cost or at higher cost. And who knows what that would have done to the value. So what I teach the student is that, no, you should start just like Austrian economics starts with value is with the use by consumers. So if you want to produce a certain type of good, which is where most entrepreneurs start, then you should think, okay, for the consumer, this has value because, and then you fill in the blank. And then you think, how can you, with very small tweaks, make this value as great as possible for as many consumers as possible? And then you take that value and say, okay, well, if that is a value, you can charge a price of, say, $100 each, and then you will sell whatever quantity. Well, then you have your revenue. Then your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out how to produce this at a cost that is lower than the price you think you can charge, which yeah. is a, taken directly from the Misesian view of entrepreneurship in a sense, right? Because you are aiming to create the future for consumers. Well, then consumers determine whether it's valuable or not. Okay, well, consumers will pay you a price that is necessarily lower than the value they get from it. That price is not really set by you. That price is determined by the consumer. The only thing you can affect is how to produce it. How many, in what way, how much machinery should you use? What materials should you use? How can you make this thing come true in a cheap way? or in a way that, that just breathes quality or whatever it is that you think consumers value. Value first, then price, and then you can choose your costs, not the other way around. Yeah, this is a very important point that you keep driving home, the difference between cost and value, which was the topic of the next question that I wanted to ask, but I'm glad that you addressed it. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how this treatment of cost and value differs between Austrian school economists and other schools? In a sense, I think formally it really doesn't, because formally all economists economists, well, except Marxists, subscribe to value as being subjective. So it's in the eyes of the beholder. It's in the use, really, and the satisfaction that a consumer gets from something. Mainstream economists, they subscribe to this too. At least they pay lip service to it. I remember when in grad school, my advanced micro professor, he uh, entered the room and he said, well, as we all know, value is subjective. But let's say we could put a number to it and we could put it in a graph and produce a utility function. Then, that was basically the first minute of his first lecture. And then the, and rest, the rest of the, of the course follows. The rest of the course was just solving the damn equation on the blackboard every day, right? Just based on that assumption that we know is false. <laughs> so they, they do recognize that value is subjective, but they don't really recognize what it means. To an Austrian, since value is subjective, you can't really make a value comparison between people. And you can't really know how much they really value something. And you also know, if you go uh, into entrepreneurship, you also know that whatever value they think that, that your product has matters not at all if they find something else that they think is even cooler. Consumers are very much like squirrel. They see something else that is shiny and they just leave. They have no loyalty whatsoever. So you will need to work on that value and make sure that it's valuable to them. And one other, maybe your most famous tweet ever, 
is on poverty. What is your take on it? You're not a fan of poverty. You argue that essentially poverty is the default state. Most people like to think of it the other way around. Most economists pretend or like to present it as if poverty is there because somebody did something. And that, you know, if you only listen to the correct economist, then there would be no more poverty. Yeah, I mean, there's the assumption is that we haven't really created anything at all because everything was here before anyway. In a physical sense, that's true. But since we're talking about value, we're talking about satisfying people's wants and making their lives better. It does matter if you have a Maserati or if the iron is still in the ground, right? Those are very different things. But the iron is still here, whether it's in the ground or in the Maserati. In a sense, a zero-sum game, but physically, and economics is not about physics. It's not about the natural resources. It's about the value in people's lives. It's a social science for a reason. So the point in that tweet, which is my pin tweet, is just to say that, well, we had all these resources in the beginning. We just had no clue how to use them. And we didn't use them. So all the wealth that we have is really stuff that we created. So it's all about our convenience and comfort and curing disease and having lodging and clothes and what have you. All of these things are created, which means that economically speaking, we were poor from the beginning. Yes, all the natural resources were there, but we needed to figure out how to do something with them and then figure out cumulatively how to do better and better and better things with the few resources that we have. What I'm simply saying is that, well, all prosperity that we enjoy today was created by people. And had it not been for this creation, well, what are we without prosperity? Well, we're poor. It's really that simple. Then a lot of people, of course, want to disagree with this for ideological reasons. So you have this, this nasty excuse for a theory where they just assume simply that, well, everybody was happy in basically living in the Garden of Eden from the beginning, running around uh, naked in the sunshine and just singing songs, I guess. And then some guy just exclaimed, this is mine. And that's when everything just went down the tubes uh, because then they excluded people from, I don't know, a clearing in the woods or something like that that they wanted to use. And then we became poor because we couldn't use that clearing. Well, people tend to tweet me this on their iPhones, which is a little bit ridiculous. It's a very strong assumption that things were excellent and awesome and great before we created anything at all because they have to go back to before we created spears to throw before we had sharp rocks as tools and all this stuff. So we were basically animals. But if you know anything about animals, that's not a Garden of Eden. It's not like they're just running around and they're happy all the time. It's a struggle. It's not necessarily the case that they're always starving and killing each other. It's not necessarily Hobbesian, but we're so much better off today. And there are so many more of us today too. Yeah. That type of existence, even if it were good existence, which I doubt, there couldn't be a whole lot of us because there's yeah. not space and there are not natural resources available to pick to sustain a whole lot of people. The romanticized version of nature where people think nature is just this blissful place where everything exists in peace is to a very large extent a product of capitalism. Capitalism is what allows us to go and experience nature in these uh, amazing, perfectly calibrated doses, safely in the right place at the right time, in the right weather. You know, you go to the forest, you've got all of your needs secured at home. You have a home where you have all of your food and all of your protection and everything that you need. And you are able to get into a car, drive into the middle of the jungle, spend a few hours or a few days. You're protected with clothes and you've got devices that you need thanks to capitalism and thanks to modern technological innovation and thanks to fossil fuels that allow 
allow you to experience nature as this amazing experience rather than for what it really is if you didn't have all of that stuff. You know, if you were there, it wouldn't be a lot of fun. You'd be hunting all day and you'd be hunted all day. You know, life is one giant hunt. The moment you stop being able to hunt, you starve and die. And the moment that you get hunted, you die a very gruesome death. The fact that we are able to step out of that, the fact that we are separated from that is a result of thousands and thousands of years of capital accumulation and investment and entrepreneurship and innovation. You know, from the day of the invention of the spear, the first time that somebody invented a spear to our smartphones, it's the same process that has taken us here. I always find it funny that these people making these claims, they basically follow Rousseau, the French philosopher and his noble savage ideal. And just like Rousseau, they claim that no, we are best off and we are most happy if we are alone as savages in in the forest, not even together. And we don't really need a community or anything like that, but just alone. Yet they don't go out in the forest. They could easily go there. It's not the Ergo Desedo fallacy. Like, well, if you don't like it here, then leave. But they're saying that they individually, for me personally, I would be better off in the forest naked and just foraging for food. Well, in that case, do it because there are plenty of forests where you can do this. At least try it out. But they don't. And just like Rousseau, I mean, he wrote about it and how that would be fantastic. And he preferred to live downtown Paris in his apartment. I mean, why? Exactly. Absolutely. It's a very, very profound point that ultimately, and I've always discussed this with a lot of people who have these romantic notions of environmentalism as essentially almost like a luxury consumer good, where they think of the environment as this amazing thing. And it's just the vast majority of earth is uncivilized and it's free of capitalism. The vast majority of the surface of earth is 100% capitalism free. You know, you go to the the vast majority of North America, Latin America, Africa, Asia, Europe to a lesser extent because it's small and it's very crowded. But even in Europe, everywhere, you know, there are so many large areas where there is no capitalism, where you can just go there and you can live in nature. And Yet these people leave all of that, leave 70 or 80% of the earth that's completely empty. And they go to downtown Paris and they go to downtown New York and they live there. And they want to tell the people who are living in Paris and New York like them that, you know, the reasons, (laughs) all the things that gave Paris and New York the reasons for you to want to be here safety from nature and safety from storms and safety from animals and safety from diseases, all of these things. Somehow, no, no, these are bad. And if we just raised New York and raised Paris and turned them back into nature, then we would all be happier. But you can just go out there and do it yourself. But no, they don't. And I, and I think it's, it's very telling about this kind of worldview that it's really not about being in nature because if you want it to be in nature, you can be there. It's about control. It's about wanting to tell you what to do and wanting to own your things and wanting to have control over you. And I think it's, if you really think about it, this is a very deep motivation for uh, many people who might portray their ideas as if it is, you know, just we, we, we actually care for the environment. No, it's, it's really not caring about the environment. It's, and it's not trying to force a better world. You're trying to just take control of other people's resources and lives. Yeah, very often I, I think many of these romantics, I mean, some of them are definitely out for control, controlling others and making sure that everybody else lives the way that they think they should live. But I think many of these people, it's really a hatred of mankind that drives them. They hate man and they hate civilization. So they want nature to be 
undisturbed by us and they want us gone from nature. So they see us as a space of plague or, or something like that. Uh, and therefore man should, should disappear. They shouldn't move into the forest, but man should disappear. I get the feeling that that's where they want to end up. It's some sort of really strange anti-human primitivism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Theo's asking another question in the chat. Um, he's saying, Austrian economics has been gaining traction for years. In your opinion, what is needed for this contagion to scale? How do we get the next 10 billion Austrian economists? Yeah, good question. That's sort of an entrepreneurship question, so I'm not sure if I have an answer. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, it's in, in a sense, it's about reaching out, but it's, a, it's, I think, more about having the right proponents, the right channels. And of course, the people need to be ready for it too. And I, I don't think we need 10 billion Austrians. It would be nice, uh, for sure. But I don't think we need that. I think what we need is just a critical mass to change the, the discussion overall which I, th I think is usually when, when they estimate these numbers is about, what is it, 5% or something like that. So if 5% can be exposed to Austrian economics and the proper way of thinking about the economy, then we would have a very different discussion. And I think we're heading there. I think we're getting there. Some of the problems, uh, speed bumps, are things like in any movement, there's infighting, people hating on each other and undermining each other, even though you have basically the same goal. A huge problem uh, would be institutions, the institutional support for Austrian economics because it's not part of the academy at all. So you can't be an Austrian scholar at universities. Well, it might, might be the case that we universities are going to be disrupted very soon. I mean, it's, it's definitely a, an industry that is ripe for disruption. Um, along with healthcare, those are the two uh, low-hanging fruits, I would say, in terms of a disruption. But you can't get a job as an Austrian. You, you can sort of in entrepreneurship, but in economics, it's, it's a big no-no because you, you need to do math and you need to do stat statistics. That's, that's what you need to do in, in economics. Uh, so institutional support is not really there. We have the Mises Institute, of course, which is a, a great resource. And especially the way they're doing it, that they're just posting pretty much all this information online, just spreading it in social media. And all the books pretty much are, are available for free on the website and things like that, right? I think they're, they're getting better at professionally reaching out. So one, one of their most, most recent project is, is the Economics for Business. There's a podcast called the Economics for Business podcast. Uh, but there's, it's a project that tries to reach out to entrepreneurs and business people with a, a proper economic theory. So teaching them Austrian economics, because that's the only economics that they can actually benefit from when they're running their businesses, when they're speaking with their customers and, and things like that, right? So, so learning what value is and, and things like that. So I think that is a, has a great potential. Other than that, it's just, it's reaching out, meeting people and exposing them to, to the ideas uh, and, and showing them that it's not really about central planning. I think one, one thing that is really a problem for Austrian economics is that it's, it's considered not a positive school. It's not a positive science, but it's an ideology. And uh, I usually argue that it's exactly the other way around because Austrian economics is a purely deductive theoretical system. So you can't sneak ideology into it and 
everything is out in the open. If you find an error in the logic, then let us know because then we will adjust that. Whereas uh, mainstream economics is looking at the data and then figuring out potential solutions to it. So there's plenty of scope for ideology, right? So they, they think it's uh, objective and uh, reliable because you have a lot of data, but we're talking about the social world here. We're talking about people's valuations, people's intentions, things like that. And you can't measure those, which means there's plenty of space for inserting your own values in the research. And I think economists are, are doing that. They're just hiding it behind loads of data. Whereas Austrian economists, we're not using data to theorize about the economy. We're just, we're deriving it from the concept of action and no one has been able to find a flaw in the, in the logic. So there, there's no space for us to, in, to insert our own values. There's no ideology. Yeah. I think, you know, in my mind, um, if you used to read the asterisk and obelisk uh, comics, where you know there's a story and there's a plot and then there's a couple of uh, boxes where it's just a bunch of dust and you see arms and legs flying around. This is and then it gets resolved after that. You don't know what happened, but you know something has happened and it's gotten resolved. For me, this is like the mathematical part of modern economics. So the, they start with the assumptions, they make the logical framework. And then a bunch of dust happens and you, uh, fists fly around and the people are kicked. And then, ta-da, they come up with the conclusion. And, you know, the, the more sophisticated the math, the more the dust, the more you can come up with all kinds of things. You know, so Asterisk died and we got a new duck in his place. And that's it. The story is going to have ducks from now on. You could, you could do that because it's just a whole bunch of dust. And ultimately, really, what it comes down to is, yeah, the, the outcome is predetermined almost from the assumptions. You see this in, in, in most economic papers, that you make the assumptions, then you run a bunch of math, and then you conclude what you had already assumed or what you had uh, made the assumptions in order to arrive at. And Austrian economics essentially takes out that dust and just logically tries to deduce the uh, outcome from the uh, from the starting points. And I think it's just far clearer. Um, it, it, it doesn't look as nice, uh, doesn't look as rigorous for people who think rigor means uh, physics. Uh, but I think it, it, it works. Uh, it works much better. Uh, Carrington, you had a question you wanted to ask? Uh, you said that there's no such thing. Uh, there's no such thing as a monopoly in a free market. In your opinion, would a free market lead to hard money? Would we have hard money on free market? What do you think? Um, sure. I mean, first, the monopoly issue. Um, I think there might be monopolies in in terms of being the loan seller of something. It wouldn't be a problem though. So you be would be a monopolist if you create so much value that no one else can compete with you. But that's not really a problem for consumers. And as soon as someone thinks of some other good or some other service that consumers like more, then sorry, your opportunity is gone. So you are no longer a monopolist, you mm -hmm. are bankrupt. Um, so there would definitely be single sellers of, of goods and services. And one way I like to think about it that makes it clear is that any innovation has only a single seller to begin with, right? And there's, so any market starts with a monopoly. And then others start, start mimicking what you're doing and start competing. It's not a problem that someone in, innovates something new and more valuable. The problem with monopoly is when it is protected 
by regulations so that no one can compete with them because that that is a huge problem but if if you're a lone seller because you innovated or because you're really really efficient and no one else can compete with you because they're not good enough well then you are the best there is for the consumers so it's not really an issue right if you raise prices at that point which is usually the fear well then others might be able to compete with you right because then there's more of a profit opportunity so the monopoly story is sort of a little different in the free market. Um, as for the hard money, yeah, I, I think and would like to believe that there would be some kind of hard money. Um, I mean, the debate is still, would banks uh, still be fractional reserve banks and, and print their own bills, even though they don't have 100% reserve? That would probably happen. I think that would happen. To what extent would it happen? Um, not sure. Uh, I think if you if you do that and not tell anyone, and, and and then your customers realize that you have been printing more than you can you have backing for, then they will run to your bank and withdraw their money. So you will go bankrupt, and they will probably um, be noticed in the transactions between the banks too. So. I don't. I don't see a a completely free market as being a one currency market either. I think there people can choose whatever whatever they like. There would probably be some some form of of standard or more common, but I don't see why there wouldn't be several currencies uh, side by side. Well, that brings us to the next question. Theo wanted to ask you. Theo. Yeah, um, I was curious. Do you do you own Bitcoin? What is your view on, on Bitcoin? And do you think that Bitcoin adoption will bring us closer to uh, an Austrian or libertarian world? And if you don't, uh, could you explain why? Okay, so do I own Bitcoin? Well, if I count my wife's account, then yes. Um, am I a millionaire? No, unfortunately not. Um, what is my view on Bitcoin? I think it's really interesting. I think it definitely has a, a lot of advantages that uh, fiat currencies do not. That's a no-brainer. Will it bring us closer to a sort of a free world? Yeah, that depends on the adoption. Um, so if it becomes the currency uh, or one like a real money using Mises uh, definition, then it would help. I mean, what we, what we need is a, a, a stable money that is not controlled by politicians and that Bitcoin is, is one, obviously. Um, I think the the problem for Bitcoin so far and for the foreseeable future is really a lack of entrepreneurship, I would say. Uh, thinking about how to make it valuable to people to have and use Bitcoin. And I don't mean to have and to hold, but to have and use it in transactions. So, I mean, the, the technology is there, um, everything tech is there, but I think there's been a lacking focus on trying to sell it to consumers. And I don't mean consumers as in enthusiasts, because that has obviously worked, but consumers in general, like my parents, they have no clue how, how to use it, how to get it, whatever. They just think it's like a money in the clouds or something. Um, and, and that's 
I mean, I think uh, entrepreneurship is very much a, a way of communicating to consumers what the value is, teaching them what the value is. Much like we mentioned Ford uh, and the Model T, it's not a, f- uh, a faster horse. It's an automobile. It's different. And he, was, he needed to tell the customers that this is not a horse and carriage. It's better for you. And it's much more valuable and useful for you because, well, fill in the blank. And, and Bitcoin, I know it's not a single organization trying to sell or anything, but there's, there's lacking entrepreneurship and in, in lacking innovation, really. Um, and no, not the difference between innovation and invention because the technology is there, like I said, but, but how do you make it useful and valuable in people's everyday lives? That's, that's, uh, that's the, the next big thing I think for Bitcoin to solve. Um, yeah, I think, uh, to offer the, the other perspective from this, I think the, 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 in my view, if you look at Bitcoin over the last 12 years, now we're at a point where the total value of all Bitcoins in circulation is around $600 billion. So, in my mind, okay, it's not all the world's money, but you know, Rome was not built in a day, and uh, we're not going to go from uh, zero essentially to uh, infinity in a day. And I think twelve years to get to six hundred billion dollar—that's a lot of value. That's that, so. It's, today, there are people holding six hundred billion dollars worth of Bitcoin around the world, and I think. Um, holding it itself is a form of use because it is, um, it's a cash balance. So you're holding it as part of your cash balance and it's, uh, it's money that you can store into the future. And it's, uh, it, it, it holds on to its value better than uh, all the uh, other monetary alternatives. So you could make the case that in fact, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's still done a, a, an incredible job so far, but it could always do better for sure. You're right yeah, of course, that. it's a success story so far. I'm not saying anything else. I'm just saying that in order for it to become a money and become the money, the go-to money for people in general, what is missing is that innovation to make it make it useful in everyday transactions for non-enthusiasts. And which is, of course, the next step. But yeah, yeah, I think um, I, maybe I disagree with you in that. I, th- I think the. Um, Having it as part of everyday transactions is already possible because you can already use it on things like Cash App and PayPal. Um, and so, so we could already be doing all kinds of um, a much larger number of uh, transactions. It's just people who hold it at this point don't see the value from using it for using it in daily transactions as much as it is in terms of holding it. But I think... Uh, because currently Bitcoin is around 0.5% of the global money market. But uh, so, so your chances of wanting to trade with somebody who also has Bitcoin is roughly 0.5% as well. Uh, when that is closer to 10, 20, 50%, then we're going to be seeing uh, these transactions emerge, I think. That's how I like to think of it, at least. All right. Anybody else have any other questions for Per? Oh, and Natalie's adding in the chat that uh, her parents still have flip phones. They won't ever understand to buy Bitcoin, but the 10-year-olds and teenagers in her life understand the value of Bitcoin very easily and are motivated to buy and hold. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, it's, 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 it's going to be a far easier sell for the younger generation than for the older generation, for sure. Oh, yeah. I don't think anybody argues against that. <clears throat> I mean, but what you can do and what entrepreneurs do which is my argument, is to make it valuable for people right now or very soon and the older generations too. Yeah. 
Yeah, what I, I'm hopefully we'll be seeing more of that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Per, for joining us. This was uh, very fascinating and um, really informative, and I enjoyed it a lot, and I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it. And hopefully we'll be having you again soon, and next time you and your wife will have more Bitcoin and uh, you, will, <laughs> you, 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 you will be seeing the light more from our perspective. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye.